0: Hello, and welcome to Break the Line, the podcast where we talk with guests about topics in contemporary poetry. The catch? The guests aren't poets. I'm your host and resident poet, Rebecca Faravar. For this episode, I spoke with a memoirist about confessional poetry. Now, confessional poetry is not an official term, but we coined it as a way to describe poems where there's an assertion in the poem that the poet is the speaker. Today's guests are Kate Moses, author of *Cake Walk*, a Memoir, Zoe Fitzgerald Carter, author of the memoir Imperfect Endings, and Eric Miller, a graduate of the MFA program at St. Mary's College of California in Creative Writing. To anchor our conversation, we focused on two poems, Turning 29 by Beth Ann Fennelly, which was originally published in a 2001 issue of the Gettysburg Review, and Matins by Louise Glück. Found in her book, The Wild Iris, published in 1993. All right, so let's get to the conversation.
1: I think the issue of truth is actually hugely complex. Um, so, it, you know, we can maybe chip <laughs> away at, at it a little bit. But, um, you know, I think there are many truths. And, you know, as a memoirist, you choose the truth you choose to tell. Mm-hmm. Um And I think you know most memoirists come up with some sort of guiding principle around how they're going to uh tell their story and and how and in a sense how um truthful they're going to be mm-hmm. um so I, I think it's very complicated and i think it's it's you know it's it's at the heart of of memoir and uh and also i think this kind of confessional poetry yeah,
2: okay. yeah and, and there's an a reason why there we have memoir, and we have autobiography mm-hmm. and it, with memoir there's much more of a sense of um, memory reflection and it, you know the science on memoir on memory is that we change our own memories every time they recur to us, and we embellish them we forget things we um switch things around we even often you know many people have had that experience of thinking you remember something from your own life and then finding out that it's something your mother told you or that you weren't in the photograph that you thought you were in and so i you know that that idea of truth i think zoe started getting there too is is that there are facts and there's truth and the truth is more the place of, of memoir, whereas I think the facts, um, it, it, truth is not as clean as facts, and memory is never going to be absolute.
0: Well, why don't we go ahead and look at one of the, the poems we have here. I thought we would start with uh, Beth Ann Fennelly's mm-hmm. poem, Turning 29. Kate, do you want to
2: read it for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Turning twenty-nine by Beth Ann Fennelly. You thought by now you'd be wiser, not still falling for the old x equal y. You wonder how you'd do if you were the last person on earth and had to be found and had to found a new civilization. Could you describe how an engine works, a radio, a light bulb? You repeat the word bulb, 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 bulb. You stop in the nick of time. Time nicks us all sooner or later. That's democracy. Once you were in Russia, and a woman cut your hair. She bent you over a tub, noosed you in a towel, and snipped away. It was the best cut you ever got. You drank tumblers of vodka with her husband. The next day, your last in that country. You took a bus to the Hermitage and puked in the john until closing. You didn't see a painting, not one somehow you're this kind of person it's hard to believe though you were voted most likely to yak in russia's best museum with good hair don't you hate it when high school's right don't you hate it when second person swishes its tongue inside your ear you wonder how you do in solitary confinement you can't do long division in your head you don't know isometric exercises Edison's last words, It is beautiful over there. Yours? These pretzels are making me thirsty. You wonder if suffering makes people more compassionate. Coleridge, caring for his typhoid son, wrote by candlelight twenty-three nights into the fever, turned a poor, very large and beautiful moth out of the window in a hard shower of rain to save it from the flames. That's one kind of person. When you visit your father who is dying at last, and he turns death dumb and whispers, did you bring Beth Ann? You say, no, that's another.
0: Great, thank you so much. So obviously, the the assertion that I was drawing on or, or thought about was this at the end, the use of the the name, the author's name. We can see the author's name, we can see her name. Um, for you, did that feel like enough of assertion? Did that feel like make the poem feel real to you? Or was there something else in there that made it feel true? Or maybe even you disagree, it didn't feel like this was coming from a confessional type of place.
2: What was your reaction? Actually, um, you know, it's because her name, the poet's name, shows up so late in the poem. That wasn't what struck me first. What What first struck me was midway through the poem, um, the line "Don't you hate it when second person swishes its tongue inside your ear?" And I thought, yeah, that's exactly what's happening here with the second person, the address of you. You know, in in another poem we'll look at, the you seems to be directed. More outward, mm-hmm. this you is directed toward the thinker, whoever's having the experience, and that made it feel very intimate and interior. Mm-hmm. And Zoe mentioned, yeah, all of these poems are so intimate, but this one felt like someone's um, mental process, and and the strange leaps that go uh, it, that we all take you know in in thinking about something and it takes us somewhere else and so from that perspective i i felt like it was a poem that felt very personal from the very beginning
3: i think from just the most basic sort of when i see a title and then i see a by so-and-so I just automatically assume there's just and of course there is always the possibility they're writing from the an adopted perspective other than their own but I don't go there naturally and perhaps a somebody who is a poet would but I see the title Turning 29 by Beth Ann Fennelly and I think oh Beth Ann is now going to tell us about her experience of turning 29 (laughs) and that's just automatically where my mind goes I, I noticed that I did not even think about the possibility. Uh, just given the title and the byline that she would have been writing from another perspective.
2: And now she's always 29 every
0: yeah. time we read these poems. Not even right. yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know what I think is really interesting about that is that anything a writer writes is being filtered through that person's intellect and imagination, their worldview, their senses. And so everything is, in that way, very much confessional, it, it's personal. Yeah, and you know, and then there's that odd thing about how you make it more universal, the more personal you make it. Um, but from that thinking about that idea, one of the things that I really like about this poem that that struck me um, was the that last shift in the poem when when the speaker of the poem as opposed to Beth-Anne, um, uh, is writing about different kinds of people. You know, that's one kind of person. Coleridge is another person, is a, a kind of person. And then the beth Ann who tells her dying father, no, I didn't bring Beth-Anne, is yet another kind of person. And there's something about that revelation of, I think maybe in in this context you could say that for some reason Beth Ann, the speaker, is revealing, a flaw in herself, perhaps. And that flaw I think is one of the things that also makes us believe people are real. And you know, and it's definitely one of those things that we all learn writing nonfiction, that in order for the reader to feel attached to whoever your narrator is. You need to feel that that person is real.
0: I wonder, though, about this, because there's so many things in this poem, uh, too, that we could actually fact check in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. So we could find out... um, if, you know, she had a father who was dying when she was 29. Like, that's something we could easily find out. We could find out if she had been to Russia. Maybe some of the other things would be a little bit more difficult, but there are these sort of facts that are anchoring it as well. So it sounds like by by the virtue of that sort of, well, maybe from the assumption of it coming, you know, some, some of us coming to it, but also that assertion um, at the end of this really dramatic, we could say flaw or very almost well depending on how you read it cold reaction or maybe it was a compassionate one it's intentionally ambiguous right. um it kind of puts all of it into a feeling that it's that it's true i know what what do you think
3: yeah i don't yeah there's no i don't doubt that any of it's not true mm-hmm. um I'm still compelled, again, by our, the the words confession and then mm-hmm. perhaps the less charged isn't quite the right right word, but autobiographical or memoirist perspective in, in a poem. And confessional, obviously, for most of us, implying that we're pulling back the curtain to mm-hmm. show something that maybe in polite society we wouldn't normally show. So here, Fennelly, if, again, we can assume this is her, might be confessing to the fact that she doesn't always live her life as elegantly, and cinematically as she might like especially oh here's the father lying on his deathbed it should look a certain way based on books i've read and movies i've seen and actually it's kind of sloppy and i'm feeling kind of tacky and so that could be considered a confession i guess and then to compare it to another poem that yeah. we looked at
0: yeah please yeah louise we can...
3: glick. am i saying the last name uh, right
0: louise glick, yes. glick?
3: Okay. Oh, yeah and matins. Yeah. Well,
0: shirt? actually, since uh, yeah, you brought it up. Why not? Would you like to read it, us, Sure. Yeah. Great.
3: Yeah. Uh, matins. One. Louise Glick. The sun shines by the mailbox. Leaves of the divided birch tree folded, pleated like fins. Underneath, hollow stems of the white daffodils, ice wings, cintaterice, dark leaves of the wild violet. Noah says, "Depressives hate the spring." imbalance between the inner and the outer world. I make another case, being depressed, yes, but but in a sense passionately attached to the living tree, my body actually curled in the split trunk, almost at peace in the evening rain, almost able to feel sap frothing and rising. Noah says this is an error of depressives, identifying with a tree, whereas the happy heart wanders the garden like a falling leaf, a figure for the part not the whole. This was curious to me a little bit in terms of discussing confessional versus autobiographical memoirist, in that there is a confession of sort. She uh, says that she is depressed. Some people might consider that totally benign and very common, but it seems to have a more objective tone. She's sort of more observing as opposed to the Fenelly poem. Um, so, I guess I was curious to the extent to which that might be called confessional, or is it simply observational, and she's a character in the midst of that observation? I
0: don't know. Oh, so in this you felt her more the speaker more as a, a character. You didn't feel like she the same sort of veracity, like, oh, Louise Glick is the the speaker of this poem as you did with the Beth and Fennelly.
3: I definitely felt like she was the speaker. But again, that's simply because her name is attached (laughs) to the title of the poem. Um, So
0: next time I send them out, I should format it differently.
3: (laughs) (laughs) However, uh, simply in terms of distinguishing between confessional and memoirist, I felt there was a more objective tone in this poem, more of an observation. And I think for me, that's where the confessional tag started to slide away a Mm. bit.
1: Yeah, I think I she's the the beginning seems very general to me and very poetic and sort of the the poet, you know, musing, da da da, you know. And then she uh sorry, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm not somebody who reads a lot of poetry. Um and then I think she 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 lays this very specific piece of information on us, you know, that Noah, so you've got like this this person named, um uh, says this thing to her about depressives and so we find out that she's, she's a depressive, that she's depressed and she lives with a, so we get this really big chunk of like kind of reality slipped in there, you know, bringing her, in, us into her reality in this very specific way. She has a partner named Noah, she's depressed and then I feel like she kind of slides back out into this very sort of poetic and to me somewhat confusing, um, maybe Kate can explain it to me, <laughs> um, <laughs> a series of, of, um, clauses here that I I don't quite understand where they end up um but 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 I you know I I love the ending I think it's it's uh it's it's sort of uh, an upbeat or not upbeat it sounds um maybe more glib than I mean it but but that she kind of comes around and makes it work again but but I I I did I did think that it was uh not nearly as confessional um as as the first one, I would agree with that. It, it it didn't have that sense of kind of opening up a vein and and really letting us in. And 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 I and like you and what you said, I think is really true that confessional does imply something that would ordinarily be hidden. So um, maybe that's a distinction to make.
0: I have sort of a little anecdote with this poem. I really distinctly remember it. Um, so it's from Louise Glück's um, "Wild Iris" is the name of the book, and it's kind of a, a long. Um, Like all the poems relate to each other and they they weave in and out. Um, And I remember in class, the Noah, that was very important. Some student in the class said, oh, I guess Noah must be her analyst, like must be her analyst. And then a chorus of students said, no, that's her son. And in fact, it is her son. Her son's name is Noah. And so it's funny how we, even as poets, were talking about it. But but then we were invited to because her son's name really is Noah. (laughs) Now, did this conversation happen or not did it happen that way who can say but there feels like an invitation to believe it that they did have this conversation um and in that way to me felt intimate like this conversation you're having in a garden with your son but i think that that's interesting what you're getting at that confessional does imply this sort of revelation and maybe in some ways it feels like by virtue of uh putting in the name of, of one of your, like, as a a poet, that's kind of a bold move. Whereas maybe for you guys, that's not so bold. You're, you're working with these, (laughs) these people, you know, but it feels very bold to say, yeah, this is, this is my son. (laughs) Here's his name right there. I don't know. know.
2: That's so interesting. I, you know, a couple of things I'm thinking about. One is just using any specific name. If we had no idea and no way to know whether Louise Gluck had or has a son named Noah, or any son, or, you know, who Noah is, if it was just any, you know, Richard. The the specificity of the name, Richard said, would lead us to believe whatever that was. And I know, I'm like, I'm so prone to believing anything anybody asserts. So, just reading that line, Noah says, "Depressives hate the spring." I felt like, "Oh, okay, I should note that. Depressives <laughs> hate the spring." And, you know, remember that for my own use. Um, but um, what Eric was talking about—the the sort of the different kind of sense of objectivity in this poem—I was thinking about it as we were all talking. That in the Beth Ann Fenley poem, it. That poem feels like the I. The speaker of the poem is at the center of the poem. the The speaker is ultimately, and and whatever she feels about herself, is ultimately the subject of the poem. Mm-hmm. Whereas, Matins feels like, um, the the. The narrator's appearance in the poem, or or uh, you know sort of creating an appearance in the poem by referring to first whoever Noah is and then referring specifically to the eye feels like the eye that in this poem is incidental Mm -hmm. to a bigger idea that goes beyond her and even how the poem ends this idea that Noah says depressives hate the spring imbalance between the inner and the outer world and the speaker at the end of the poem um says that again you know she's making a or he she it is making an argument for something else of being connected to the outer world not just um isolated in interiority and and the very end lines, a figure for the part, not the whole. That to me felt like it was about the speaker being a part and not the whole. And the whole would make, you know, that I the prevalent idea of what this subject or what this poem is about.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. And sort of also going back to the use of you versus I too, because I know something that um, as a writer, I, I get concerned with, um, because it does happen in poetry, is using the I almost as a prop, right? That I, I don't mean I, I'm just saying I because it's easier mm-hmm. to explain this idea or this direction um, if it's coming from a specific point of view. it's not necessarily me. So I say I and it's kind of a prop. And so it seems like maybe in some ways the I in Louise Glick's poem feels more like a, a prop to a higher idea versus the you which was maybe counterintuitive that a you would be more expressive or feel more intimate than than the use of I um what in your in your own writing um this use I mean I guess is this something you ever deal with as memoirists the shifting between you versus I or how am I using the I when I when you write something this is something you guys ever deal with in your writing
1: well, you're kind of stuck with I. Um, I'm, well, I suppose people have written memoirs not using uh, I. They may use their name. Um, it seems a little awkward. Um, but, you know, you you do want to keep the I's on the page to a minimum because they become annoying, I think, after a while to the to the reader. And so just, you know, ways of, of approaching sentences so you're not beginning every sentence with I or, you know, you're not finding the I in the, in the middle of every sentence, I think is... Is something that I was aware of uh, writing. Um, uh, Yeah, just
2: yeah. You know, I was thinking about this too. That um, there's a similarity between the I, the the I in a poem, and the I in a memoir, and and that is that readers tend to assume, uh, unless they've been taught otherwise, I think, that the I in a poem is the poet. And the I in a memoir is the memoirist. But in fact, even in memoir, you're shaping an I. You're shaping a narrator who can serve that story. And my personal belief is that you really can't get a whole person on a page. You know, we're just way too complex. And for any story, you're going to have to... um, balance out the quote-unquote facts with the elements of fact that add to the real truth of that story, getting back to the facts versus the truth. And that may mean that even the I you're creating in your own memoir is someone who your friends and family would not necessarily recognize as you, or you wouldn't even recognize as you. And, And you have to do that in order to make the the ultimate story that you're trying to tell can't be really told just with the facts alone. It has to somehow be shaped. It's almost like the page, what was written on the page became the official version for me. Even though in some ways I may know, say, I'm recalling in a particular scene, for example, a conversation that, might have happened when I was six or seven years old, and maybe I remember one you know, phrase from that that's exact, and the rest of it, I'm not exactly sure what was said, but I'm trying to recreate it so that it feels true to my own experience. Well, it's very hard then to, to get out of that and, and um, whatever was written and see it any other way. And I was actually thinking, you know, for you, Rebecca, how does that feel as a poet when you use your own um, primary material, so to speak, um, what one friend of mine calls ransacking your life for (laughs) material. So when you ransack your life for material as a poet and you take it wherever else you take it, how does the quote-unquote factual feel for you afterward?
0: Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess for myself, my own writing is different than the the poems we've just been talking about. They tend to be more abstract and very like image based. And I think of it, you know, as a an image conveying a feeling or emotion. Um, so I don't have the same sort of like narrative structure to to tie to. But certainly, um, like for example, I have a line in one poem where it says a child bored by the beach, you know, to convey the sense of, oh, how could someone be bored by the vastness of the world, (laughs) you know, but that was truly how I felt as a child, you know, and I definitely distinctly remember getting angry at my mom one day at the beach, me like, I hate the beach, I hate coming here, it's so boring, why do you make us come, you know, and so that there are little so it's less of a narrative and more like there's just these little nuggets that are sprinkled through that that do come from a specific moment that actually happened. But I think because they're not linked together, then I don't I don't have an overarching mm-hmm. narrative of of what happened or that I'm attaching myself to.
3: Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder how many times Robert Frost must have been asked in his lifetime, so what was the decision that you were trying to make when you got to that fork, that proverbial fork in the road, and what his response must have been. He must have crafted something to, like, deal with that.
2: Or what did your crappy neighbors do to you to make you want that fence?
0: (laughs) Great. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for for speaking with us. It was really interesting. Great. Um, And thank you, everyone, for listening to Break the Line. Thanks. Bye.
3: You can say whatever you want about anybody in your life as long as you say they're hot. (laughs) And there may be some truth to that. I don't know.